0: 2 Peter chapter 1, and uh, you're going to go to 1 Peter because that's where we've been for months now. But we've moved on to the next letter. Last week we did conclude our time in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. This is the second letter that Peter has written, and we're going to look at this in the month of July I'm going to begin today. Some of you thought <clears throat> that last Sunday was my last Sunday before the break, but I'm going to begin Second Peter today, and then for the next four Sundays, we're going to finish out this book with four other uh, people preaching, and I'm going to be using part of my time in study uh, for what's coming later here at Grace. I'm going to be spending part of my time in Eastern Europe, leading a pastor's retreat, and then a little bit of vacation, and then I'll be back in August, Lord willing. Second Peter was written by the same man who wrote first Peter. His name is Peter. He was an original disciple of Jesus. His name is also Simon or Simeon, as we will read today. Jesus named him Cephas. The other translation of that is Peter, which means rock. That's why we call him Simon Peter. He was designated by Jesus to be an apostle. Now, that means that he had authority. He had authority to lead the church of Jesus Christ as it was established originally. And he had authority from Jesus by the Spirit to set the message and the doctrine of the church. And he, along with the other apostles, did this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Peter's going to talk about that, not this Sunday, but next week so that we have now God's Word written down in Scripture. That was a It's what we call an apostolic ministry, a ministry of the apostles given by God, inspired by the Spirit to give God's words to the church written down in Scripture, so we have now exactly what the Lord wants. That ministry of the apostles ended when they finished writing and they died. Now we have the Bible. We're grateful for it. The same people... Are here as well. It's the congregation that received 1 Peter received 2 Peter. They lived and they worshiped and they worked and they witnessed in the same region as we've talked about, this region then known as Asia Minor, now known as Turkey. The purpose of these two letters in some ways is similar. They're both about the grace and the mercy of God toward us in salvation. They're both about Faithfulness to Christ and faith in Christ. But here's the difference. In 1 Peter, the first letter, the context was suffering. Peter talked a lot about faith and faithfulness to Christ in the midst of suffering. In 2 Peter, the context is false teaching. He talks about faith and faithfulness to the truth of God's word versus The distortions of the truth by the false teachers. The year, it's about A.D. 66 or 67. Peter has already been shown, as we will read today, by the Lord Jesus, that he is about to depart. That doesn't mean go on another trip. It means he's going to die. He's going to put off the body. And so he did. About a year year or two after this writing, Peter died. Tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down by Emperor Nero. From a deep heart of love. that's That's what I read when I read this text, this book. I read Peter's love. His love for Christ, his love for Christ's church. He wrote this letter from a deep desire for the congregation to continue in the truth of God's grace, for the congregation to remain in faith and to be faithful, from this deep heart of love and desire, he writes a letter to remind them. He says, remember these things after I'm gone. He knows he's going to leave, die. And so he's leaving them something to remind them. Now, brothers and sisters, before we start reading, I first want you to simply realize what you are holding in your hands. It could be with paper and ink like mine, or it might be on a device with a screen, a phone, or a tablet, or something. But we are holding in our hands a letter Inspired by the Holy Spirit God Himself. Through an apostle whose hands wrote this and also touched Jesus. Preserved in the providence by the sovereignty of Almighty God. Given to the church and really to the world. Anybody can read this. And we're holding this letter today written. By a man who a year or two later was martyred for Christ. Peter. What a gift. What a gift. July. Read it. It will take you, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes to read it out loud. It's not long. Receive it, heed what it says. So let's, let's begin. Enough introduction. You ready? Stand with me in honor of God's Word. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. They keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is God's word. You may be seated. The greetings of the New Testament letters are so intentional full of spiritual truth. Simeon, or Simon Peter, a servant of Jesus Christ, Jesus said to him after the resurrection, Peter, Simon, feed my sheep. That's exactly what Simon Peter is doing in this letter. He's serving Christ by feeding us. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jesus appointed him and the other apostles to establish the church in the word and in the gospel. He writes to those, we've already mentioned who they are, it's the same congregation that he wrote the first letter to, but look what he says, your faith, you have obtained a faith that is equal to ours, meaning equal to Peter and the apostles and the missionary companions. They obtained it From Christ himself, because of Christ's righteousness, which means that Christ shows no partiality. That when he grants faith, it's faith equally so to all people. There are no classes of Christians. There's a Christian, period. Whether you are an apostle, whether you're a brand new Christian a week old, whether you know all about the scriptures or you're not sure how many books there are in this big thing, faith is faith a christian is a christian verse 2 he says as we grow in the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord grace and peace are multiplied to us the grace of god in salvation is the first wave of grace the peace that we have objectively standing before Almighty God, reconciled to God in the righteousness of Christ, sins forgiven at peace is the first wave. And in the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, our Lord, which is what life is all about. It's all about getting to know God through Jesus. Grace and peace are multiplied to us. And then we come to the beginning After the introduction, the greeting, now we come to the beginning of the letter. And there's a call here. And the call to us is to remember the qualities of godliness. But the call begins with God himself. It begins with what God has done. Never are we commanded without first understanding the grace of God in our lives. So here's how the text goes, and we'll take it today. First, we're going to remember the grace of God. And then we're going to remember the qualities of godliness that we're to put on. And then we'll see what the results of this are. First, in verses 3 and 4, Peter opens by reminding the people of the great grace of God. He puts it this way. He says, His divine power has granted to us. The granting is the grace God's grace is always the beginning point for us. But God's power is the beginning point of God's grace. It is from God's divine power that he grants us things. Verse 3, he grants us all things that pertain to life and godliness. An amazing, amazing statement. In other words the Christian doesn't say if only God would then I could. God has. He has granted to us all things that we need. To live in this life and to live godly to pursue godliness to grow in Christ likeness. Verse 4, he has granted to us precious, very great and precious promises, and he did this by his divine power, which means he does this, did this by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have been with us for several months at Grace, you'll remember First Peter. How did it begin? You've been born again to a living hope. There's the divine power. When he says, by his divine power, he's granted us these things, he means by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the same that he started in First Peter, By being born again. When we are born again, when we become new in Christ Jesus, God's power by the Holy Spirit does a work of grace in us. A work of grace in a human, natural, spiritually lifeless soul. It happens this way. God in his power, his divine power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, comes to a spiritually lifeless soul a human being still in sin with the inability to respond to god in any positive way and god in his grace awakens does something in the soul of that human being to awaken that human being that spiritually lifeless sinful dead human being to himself, to, to turn the light on in that soul. So that person says, I see. And I can respond. The person becomes new and becomes responsive. This is the divine power of God at work in a human soul, granting all things for spiritual life, and then to go on to grow on in godliness. With being born again from the Spirit, we get all things. We get great and precious promises that sustain us now and take us on into the future. Verse 3, he says, this comes through the knowledge of him. When we come to know Christ, Christ who called us to himself, to his glory and to his excellence, we get all things, all things to live and to grow into Christ-likeness. What are all things? Pardon me, but I have to put it in three categories and they all start with a P. But I want you to remember. I want to See, I want to be like Peter. I want to remind you. I want, when you leave, I want you to know. What are the all things that he says here? Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Well, one way we could see this, the first category I would say is that all things includes the provision of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is it. Don't look anywhere else. Stop looking elsewhere. You do not need anything novel. Novel approaches to the Christian life will take you the wrong direction. It is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that provides for us all things. At the cross of Christ, your sins are paid for. A debt you cannot pay. And Christ paid it. Your penalty was suffered, was endured. Christ did it. Your sins are forgiven. The sin, big one, like I'm just a sinner, and the sins, like the one you may have committed last night or this morning that is around you like a weight of guilt, is forgiven. And the resurrection Life, new life, death to the old self, raised to walk in newness of life. The provision of the cross and the resurrection by which you are reconciled to God. And then there is the promise of the future. He calls it very great and precious promises. The promise that we will have life continually with God when we depart, as Peter is saying he's going to do. When we put off this body, but it's not just a continual life, it's a completed life. In other words, all of the good work of God in your life to make you like Jesus Christ, so that you can enjoy him for all of eternity, will continue in all of eternity. It is too hard for us to get our minds around, but it is both completion and continual. When you complete a task, you walk away from it. Not the Christian life, not the gospel. When God completes his task of getting you like Christ, you live in the completion continually. That's the promise that moves us and carries us on. All things pertaining to life and godliness. And then there are practical helps now. Every day in this body, every day on this earth, every day until we put off the body, as Peter is going to do, every day until we depart, as Peter is going to do, every single day, we have the very practical, real, right here, help of the Holy Spirit, of the Scripture, and of the church. There's three things I know I need. Three things I know I need for life and godliness in this world. And three things I have. And you do too. I have the Spirit. You have the Spirit. If you're born again, you have God's Spirit. He lives in you. He inspired a book called the Bible. You have it. People died for this. God preserved this we have it and we have each other we have the church we have all things (laughs) we have everything we need verse 4 he says we have precious and very great promises the bible is full of promises of God's saving work from Genesis to Revelation in the book of Genesis God to Abraham I'll raise up nations from you. A nation and all the nations will be blessed through you. And we come to Revelation and people from every nation are bowing before Christ. And every step along the way, every book of the Bible, all along, very great and precious promises of God's saving work. He will get it done. John Wesley said, the gospel itself is one great promise from beginning to end. And The apostle Paul told us that Jesus Christ himself is the yes, all caps, exclamations, whatever emojis you want to put, the yes to all the promises of God. He's granted us these things for life and godliness. God has granted us these things for the purpose for the purpose, with intention. When God gives a gift, He intends for something to happen with the gift. Life. Spiritual life. We are alive to God. He's raised us from the dead, spiritually. Every morning He raises us from the bed. And we know that we are set with the Spirit within us We are set in the direction of Christ to live. And for the purpose of godliness, to be like Christ, that we might be, verse 4, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that characterizes this world. We, before we're born again, and all in it who are not born again, who live by the sinful desires of the flesh. God intends for us to partake of the divine nature. Now, look at verse 4. It's an amazing statement. The divine nature is not the divine being. That's a heresy. Do you know what a heresy is? A heresy is an untruth but a really bad one because it's an untruth about God. And about theology and about the Bible. It's an untruth that we partake of the divine nature by becoming a part of the divine being or the divine essence. Some people believe that as human beings, we're actually caught up and taken up into God Himself and actually become God. That God is always growing because there are more and more of us coming into Him and becoming Him. That's a heresy. We partake of the divine nature in that we, ta- we partake of the character qualities that exist in God that he intends for us to take on. We're to become what some people like to call little Christs. It's a big theme in Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, but he doesn't mean by that we become the essence. He means by that that we reflect his character and in, in nature as our character is changed. Let's dive a little deeper, okay? A theology lesson. We call this in theology non-communicable and communicable attributes. Now, the medical people among us thought I was going to say diseases, but we know what those are, right? Non-communicable diseases are the diseases that we don't share with each other. We don't give them to each other. The communicable diseases are the ones that we do give to each other, okay? In theology... The non-communicable attributes of God are the attributes of God that we don't share with him. For instance, God is the creator. We're not. God is self-sustaining. We are absolutely dependent. God, we like to say, is omni. You know, he's he's all-powerful omnipotent he's all-knowing omniscient he's everywhere omnipresent we're not we're limited and always will be even in heaven there will be a limit to us because we will always be creatures never the creator but there are communicable attributes things that we share We share these things with God because God gives them to us. For instance, God is all-wise, but God gives us the ability to be wise. He gives us the Word of God by which we grow in wisdom. We grow in knowledge. We are creative. We're not creator, but we're creative. We have moral conscience. This is a communicable attribute of God, one that he gives to us. Moral conscience, the ability to discern and do The right thing, the ability to love. To share in the divine nature is to become spiritually alive to God by the work of his spirit. And then it is to grow in godliness like God in the ways that he intends without becoming God. Another way we say this is we become like Christ, his son. We live like Christ. Christ, godly, rather than corrupt, as he says, like the world following after our sinful desires. This is the purpose for which God grants us grace. Now, let's just let that sink in. The purpose for which God grants us the grace of all things and the very great and precious promises is because he wants to change us. He wants us to grow in godliness. He does not want to work a change of standing before him and then stop. He wants to work the change of standing before him, meaning we're reconciled to him and we can stand before him in peace. But then he wants to continue with that so that we actually grow in our character to take on his character qualities that he gives us. So the provision of the cross... The promises, the very great and precious promises, the practical helps for every day are for the purpose of us becoming like Christ. This is God's grace. There is intention behind grace. It's powerful to change. And that should stir in us. Faith. You can can become a Christian today. I'm going to say that before I get to the next phrase because the next part or the next point because the next point is about great effort and I want to stop before we talk about effort and say you can become a Christian before we get to effort you become a Christian by faith you can receive this gift of the cleansing of your sins and peace with God and a right standing before him and the Holy Spirit living inside of you and you becoming a new person this is yours by faith it's a gift of grace that you receive by faith And our response to this is humility and it's worship. Nothing moves us to worship like the grace of God, the perfections of God, the movement of God toward us in mercy and kindness. This is what stirs the worship of God in a human soul more more than anything. And hope, what hope is there? What hope is there that we could ever change? What hope is there that we could ever be something other than what we are in our our character? The hope is that God has granted to us all things and every great and precious promise we need to move forward in godliness. And it stirs in us affection for Christ to say, oh, how he loves us that he would grant us these things freely from his own grace. And it stirs in us resolve, which leads to the next part. The second big category in this text, verses 5 through 7, is our great effort. We resolve in light of God's grace to make every effort to take on the qualities of godliness verse 5 he says for this reason for what reason for the very reason that god gave us all things grants us precious great and precious promises for the purpose of godliness for this very reason we are called to make every effort we need to talk about this phrase this causes some of us to break out in hives the moment we put effort into Christian conversation, it gets challenging. The phrase does not mean that we are saved by our effort. Once again, we affirm, more than affirm, we, int- we trust, we cling to, we embrace the beautiful doctrine, teaching, teaching, from the Bible that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It is His merit, not ours. It is His grace, not our effort that saves us. So the phrase does not mean that we are saved by our effort. The phrase does not mean that we add effort to the faith. We're going to look at the words very closely. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. We're not saying that that we're to add effort to the faith. The faith is a phrase we use to refer to the content, the teaching, the message of the gospel. We don't add effort to that. The effort we make is to supplement or to add to, to build upon effort. Our faith this is what this means it's another way of saying continue to grow in godliness once you have come to faith in Jesus Christ the growth itself is by the grace of God because God has supplied everything needed for the growth it's growth in grace as God supplies it's appropriating what God supplies it's using what God supplies with great effort to grow. It's coming back to the cross and the resurrection. It's, it's clinging to the promises. It's taking up all the practical helps of the Spirit's help and the Word of God and the brothers and sisters in Christ. It's using all of this and much more to continue on in our faith. This effort that we're talking about here in no way contradicts God's grace it is using God's grace all things for godliness we supplement the word Peter uses here we supplement with what he supplies now this is so important because we have a tendency don't we toward legalism we have a tendency to say, Oh, okay, well, am I, is my effort strong enough? Am I doing enough to be saved? Is my, have I secured my standing with God because of my effort, because of my achievements? With a tendency toward legalism. This is not what Peter is teaching. We have the opposite tendency toward a passivity, toward being lax in our approach, to a lack of discipline. They would say, well, that's, it's God saved me. It's all covered. It's all good. I'm in. Why bother? Why put forth any effort to grow in grace? We're corrected here on both of these tendencies to say that because God has supplied all grace, now then we, by grace, taking up his grace, building on faith, make every effort to supplement with what he has supplied. And that's what he says. Verse 5, to supplement your faith, your subjective faith in Christ, grow. And how do we do it? He says, with virtue. When you become a Christian, by faith, by grace through faith, part of your growth into godliness is to take on virtue or moral goodness. You'll be careful that you don't make a virtue out of things that aren't really virtuous. It means moral goodness. It means moral excellence. It, this is a divine attribute. God himself has moral excellence. And this is one of those communicable attributes that God has for us. He wants us to take on his moral excellence from the new heart to live the new life of moral goodness in the way we treat people. The Bible has much to say about sexuality because sexuality, human sexuality, is one of those areas that we are so prone, it's so powerful, it's it's almost uniquely so. And it's one of those areas that human beings are always, always slipping over into immoral thinking and behavior in the area of sexuality. And so virtue or moral goodness certainly applies to human sexuality. And other ways of relating to people and honesty and those sorts of things. We're to, we're to order our lives according to God's will for our living. Examine your life. Are you adding virtue? Are you growing in morality? And, and I, we need to stress this more and more, continually stress this, remind ourselves morality really does still matter. It does. And there's nothing, nothing contradictory to the grace of God, about morality, virtue. We should add it to our faith to grow in Godliness. Then he says, after virtue, look at the verse, knowledge, meaning wisdom, discernment about what's true and right. Well, we have to know Christ to know that, don't we? We have to know the Bible to know that don't we we have to know ourselves I have to know I have to be aware not not self-fixated not self-hyphenated that we've been talking about but I have to know myself and know my tendencies so that I'll know how to walk in moral virtue we have to know what life is about we have to know God's will there's a certain knowledge that we must take on in order to progress in godliness and then add to that self-control Self-control, that's interesting, isn't it? We're talking about the self-hyphenated sins, and here the Bible says self-hyphenated control. Self-control. But this is, this is a different sort of uh, quality. This is a fruit. It's a fruit of being spirit-controlled. And here's a statement that we should probably make. A person who is filled with the Spirit is not a person who loses control. Often people think that to be spirit-filled is to have an experience that's where you are out of control, a religious experience where you're out of control, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when you're spirit-controlled, when you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, then you take on the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. It's the ability to discern and to decide and to think and to act for good and for God's will. It's even the ability, self-control is being filled with the Spirit and under the Spirit's control to the degree that we can actually correct ourselves and correct our perspectives and correct even our emotions. takes them a little bit longer to get in line sometimes, but we can sure speak to them and not letting them drive us. And then he says, add steadfastness. This is perseverance, this is, this is patience. Patience is a word that means remaining under. Patience is required when you're under pressure. I mean, really under pressure. Not just a bit irritated, but under pressure. The pressure of life, the pressure of trials, the pressure of temptation, the pressure of conforming to the world. When you remain under this pressure and then you remain faithful, you are being patient and steadfast This we're to add to our faith as a part of our Christian growth. And then he says godliness. Well, he already mentioned godliness in verse 3. All things are given to us for the purpose of godliness, which leads me to see this list this way virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness are moving toward this pinnacle of internal spiritual maturity, which is called godliness or like Christ in all of his ways. But it's not the end of the list, which means this internal growth in godliness then has an outward expression, and the first one is in the form of brotherly love or brotherly affection, and then the seventh one is love. But listen, this doesn't mean that brotherly affection is is less than love or a weaker form of love. Brotherly affection is love in the context of the Christian community. There's something special about this. We, We saw this in 1 Peter. There's something special about this, or at least there ought to be. Something special about this, not just the physical room, But the real gathering of God's people in time and space. There's something special about belonging to God and therefore belonging to each other, so that the love we have for the body of Christ is described as brotherly family affection. It's an expression of godliness and then love that probably expands the boundary it doesn't mean it's greater than affection it probably just expands the boundary to say we have love for all people the greatest of these is love it's beautiful These last two, affection and love, are the expressions of the first five, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, godliness. They're all being built from our faith and they all are obtained by grace. As we consider these qualities, we should see them as what it means to be mature. Brothers and sisters, God's grace is intentional. It's purposeful in our lives. God intends and purposes for us to make every effort with His grace to grow in godliness and to express it this way. Now why? We'll close with this. Why? The result of godliness, verses 8 through 11, is that we would not be ineffective or unfruitful. The result is is that we would be effective and fruitful in the Christian life. Verse 10, the reason, the the goal of this is that we would confirm our calling and our election. We don't earn, we say it again, we don't earn our calling and our election or our salvation, we confirm it. God does it, but this process of growth, this adding to, this taking on these qualities, this obedience in this way, is the confirmation of our calling. We practice these qualities. Verse 10, we won't fall away. We won't stumble. Verse 11, these qualities are ours in increasing measure, and they ensure for us then an entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I could preach a whole other sermon on these, but I'll let you do that to yourself when you go home today. Do you feel stirred up? Verse 13. He said, I've done this to stir you up. Are you stirred up to want to become a Christian today? To want to enter the kingdom? Are you stirred up, Christian, to want to supplement your faith with these qualities? Let's close today with hearing what he said. He said, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. You know them. You're established in them, in the truth that you have. But he said, I think it's right. As long as I'm in this body, as long as I'm with you, as long as I still have a hand to write with, I'm going to stir you up by way of reminder. And then the putting off of the body is soon. Our Lord Jesus Christ has already made it clear to him. But he's going to make every effort so that when he leaves, when he's gone, after his departure, at any time, you'll be able to recall. And here it is. He did it. At any time, you can pick this up with the Spirit, and you can recall the great and precious things that God has for us. We look forward to the month ahead, don't we, in Second Peter.